Hello and welcome to the Good Mood Podcast. My name is Dr. Talia Marcajani. I'm a naturopathic doctor and I've dedicated my practice to learning everything there is to know about optimizing mental and emotional health. In this podcast, we answer the question, what does it take to live a life of truth, beauty, freedom, vitality, purpose, and joy? In a mix of solo episodes and interviews, I'll be talking about all the things that fascinate me, nutrition, nature, the latest science, psychology and psychotherapy, mindfulness and meditation, supplementation, and more. I'm so excited to have you here. Welcome to episode 11 of the Good Mood Podcast. In today's episode, I talked to Dr. Dana Patel, who is a chiropractic doctor with a focus on women's back pain and plant-based nutrition. Dana shares her journey to a plant-based diet, as well as her own personal struggle with inflammation and chronic pain. We talk about the difference between being plant-based versus being vegan, and how nutrition is not about adhering to specific diets per se, but an ongoing process developing a deep relationship with our individual bodies and food. Dana and I discuss how diet plays a role in inflammation that lies at the root of chronic pain and other health conditions like depression and anxiety. We also talk about mindset for dealing with pain and suffering, and how breathing is the cornerstone of not only chronic pain and inflammation, but perhaps our entire health. This is such an interesting conversation that highlights the fact that no matter what health condition we start with, the journey towards optimal well-being involves a variety of factors. However, optimal health is not really a destination, but a process that involves lots of patience, persistence, and self-compassion. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Dana. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me here. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you for coming. Um, So we are going to talk about all kinds of different things, but the main... Uh, topics that we're interested in discussing today are um, nutrition, specifically the plant-based diet and how that might relate to inflammation or health in general. And you said that you you um, came across a plant-based way of eating based on your own personal story. Uh, do you want to share that? Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess it started more so like when I was younger because my mom is vegetarian. So we grew up eating a lot of vegetarian foods. So there wasn't really meat in the household to begin with. And no one really ate seafood in my house either. So that was something that like I just never came across, especially the seafood. The meat we ate maybe outside of the house once in a while, but it was never really a staple thing for me. So I like it just wasn't something that we ate often anyways. So I kind of grew up vegetarian to begin with. And then with seafood, I just, I could not take the taste and the smell. Like it just never stuck with me ever. So I have never really been a fan of it my entire life. So already like those two things kind of pushed me more into um, just eating vegetarian in general. And it wasn't until probably high school, I would say that I started actually buying my own meat and like eating chicken and like the occasional beef, but that was pretty much it also in terms of meat. And I'm also like, I grew up, um, my parents are Hindu and they grew up with like the, um, just, you're not supposed to eat beef. Like that was just something that's part of the culture. So I also really didn't feel like it was right to eat beef, even though I still ate it sometimes. It just, it never was a thing that I 
ate very often, basically. So that's how I started off. And I, I like I know that um, I started learning about more nutrition and how you need to have more protein in your diet. So I always thought, okay, I have to eat meat. This is the healthy way to eat. And I just kind of stuck with that. And then since high school, like university, I was eating meat. And then I started like it was probably after I did a cleanse and that one you just like for 21 days, you had no meat, no protein, like no eggs, no dairy. And I just cut out a lot of things out of my life. And I've also been very iron deficient my entire life too. So that was something I've always been dealing with. And I'm sure that was also part of maybe not eating meat at an early age. I honestly don't really know. It's just kind of a thing that runs in my family as well. Mm -hmm. It's probably just based on what we've been eating as kids. At least that's what I thought. And I started feeling it even more when I was in like actually no not university probably more in chiropractic college so I felt the iron deficiency I was like dizzy all the time so I was like okay I'm gonna start eating red meat again and I um, even like I didn't really feel good eating meat especially after doing that cleanse and I also started noticing that I didn't really like eating eggs so I don't I just I just kept eating them because I'm like eggs are healthy. It's something that everyone eats. Everyone's supposed to eat them. Everyone eats meat. Like it's just I just kept continuing with it. And then I started noticing I didn't really feel good eating these things. So I started cutting out the meat. And that was the first thing that went out of my diet and I was like, "Let me just try this." A lot of people are vegetarian. They survive and like you're still getting all your nutrients obviously somehow. So I was like, let me just try this. And I cut out meat. This was probably about three and a half years ago now. And I never went back. I just, I missed some of like the textures and the flavors, but it was just like, maybe it's just just because it never stuck with me when I was a kid. It just kind of, it was easy for me. So that was one of the first things that left. And also I was experiencing a lot of um, cystic acne. So I still have a lot of acne, but I got rid of the cysts actually when I stopped eating the eggs and the dairy. Mm. So I... The dairy, I actually cut out the dairy because I'm severely lactose intolerant. So that had to go no matter what. <laughs> and I started feeling less acne, but the, the cysts were still there. So I had been working with a naturopath probably for about four or five years with like hormone stuff and just like working on the acne, but nothing was changing. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to try taking the eggs out and see, just see what happens. And my cysts went away completely. So I was mm. like, okay, definitely the was the eggs. Mm. Yeah. And then I did a, uh, a food sensitivity test probably a few months after I'd taken everything out. It confirmed the eggs. And um, I know like those are not mostly accurate, or at least I don't know how accurate the one that I did was, but it did show the eggs. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to stick without eating eggs. So that's kind of how I went to eating plant-based. And I like, once I became pretty much like at the beginning, I was just like, I'm going to go vegan. I'm not going to buy leather. I'm not going to eat honey. And I just like went straight to the opposite end. And I feel like that was really detrimental to me because it just like, it eliminated so many things so quickly And I didn't feel good about that. Like I just like I had some leather stuff, like leather lasts forever. So I still had leather leather boots and purses. And then I was like, I have this vegan identity and I associate myself with this word, but I'm still wearing the shoes and I'm still like eating the honey and I'm still 
doing all these things. So I didn't really feel good. And I, I feel like part of that was like, just this, like, I don't know, it's like this stigma about being vegan that I didn't really like. And then I started going towards a more plant-based diet, which was, I was like, I'm just going to focus on the foods that are nourishing, that are whole foods, stay away from the processed stuff. And I still eat those a few times because it's hard not to. So I'm not going to pretend like I'm 100% whole food plant-based, but it's always been a journey. Like it's always been one thing at a time that I just kind of um, try to make my diet a little bit better. So Mm -hmm. it's never just been like, I'm just going to wake up and become plant-based because it's good for my health kind of thing. So that's been my journey to get here so far. That's awesome. Yeah, it's like what I'm hearing is it's not so much about this, like trying to fit yourself into the mold of a prescription diet. It's like starting off with um, your heritage, you know, how you grew up and how you normally would eat in your household, what you're used to eating, and then your own individual health needs, and then exploring your relationship with various foods. So eggs and dairy and, oh, these foods are aggravating my skin and potentially my hormones and causing inflammation in my body. And so um, I'm, I'm going to remove these foods because I feel better, not because it fits any sort of dietary framework. And then just working sort of uh, in relationship with your body to figure out what foods work for you and what style of eating works for you. It's like this idea of this individualized diet as opposed to um, adhering to a title or some sort of internet hashtag diet, you know, what does your diet look like? Like what, what are the type of foods that you will consume? Yeah. So, I mean, lately it's been a little bit all over the place, (laughs) but for the most part, I focus a lot on the vegetables. I feel like that's the most important thing. And I do a lot of like lentils, beans, and tofu as well. So I stick to those as part of my proteins. And then I try to stick in a lot of healthy fats and like nuts and seeds. And um, I try to put them into anything. So if I'm cooking something like just if like baking, especially I'll throw in flax seeds and they're good replacement for eggs anyways. So that kind of amps up the fiber. So I'm always trying to find ways to um, increase like the protein and the healthy fats, but also at the same time, like focusing on the healthier ways to do that with the fiber and um, like everyone knows, or if you don't know, fiber helps to reduce inflammation. Mm-hmm. And even like with exploring all of these things and um, trying to figure out what foods I should be eating, I realized that I do have a lot of inflammation. And that was also leading me to things like just experiencing pain a lot more. So it was like, it doesn't necessarily cause the pain in itself because maybe it comes from injuries or something, but I've been experiencing a lot of neck and upper back pain for so many years. And even just like with treating it physically, I noticed it wasn't really making a big difference. And that's when I kind of associated like, okay, the way that I'm eating is helping to decrease my inflammation at the same time. So let me keep eating these types of things to help with that inflammation. And that also took me through like reducing my pain. So that's another journey that is kind of combined with this whole like, what am I eating kind of thing. Is the back and neck pain what brought you to become a chiropractor? Actually, I started experiencing that it was, this is a strange story too. So I was involved in a car accident two weeks before I started chiropractic college. Mm -hmm. So I like, 
I feel like everything happens for a reason. That was not the reason that I started going into chiropractic college, but it has literally shaped me because that experience, like if I hadn't gone through the pain myself, I don't feel like I would mm-hmm. be able to relate in the same way to my patients that I do now just because mm-hmm. I was like, I've been there. So yeah. Totally. <laughs> Right. And then, and then you start noticing these symptoms of inflammation in your body. Maybe we can just go over inflammation in general. We hear this word thrown around a lot. A lot of people listening probably know a lot about health, but maybe we'll just establish a baseline of knowledge and talk about what is inflammation. Yeah. So, I mean, there's different types of inflammation, but um, the type that I'm referring to is more of like a systemic body type of inflammation versus like, say, you sprain your ankle and you have a little bit of swelling, that's localized inflammation. And that's actually good. We want that to be able to actually heal. So you want a little bit of localized inflammation and um, it becomes an issue once it's like, once it's full body. So like, it can um, be just like a whole bunch of inflammatory cells that are moving throughout the entire body. Um, maybe things are slow, so they're not repairing as well. So there's always like your body's always trying to repair something and maybe things like repetitive motions or injuries. Like if we're doing the same kinds of things like at work every single day, you're like, you're in this like cycle where you're just like your body's always trying to repair yourself, but you're injuring yourself and then it's trying to repair that. And then you just keep like, you just stay at this really like baseline inflammatory level. That's just always there. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm referring to, at least when I speak about inflammation in the body. Right. And then, yeah. And then it, it could cause symptoms like chronic pain in a certain area or, um, swelling, like water retention is a big one. I find, especially when it comes to food sensitivities, one of the things that we often say is like, if you notice these massive fluctuations in the scale, um, pay attention to the foods that you're eating. Cause if, especially if it's a food that you don't eat very often, it could be, um, when you eat it and then notice a giant influx of weight. It, yeah. Um, I actually lost about 25 pounds just from going plant-based. So like you can, that was like a huge indicator for me as to that was inflammation weight basically, because I didn't really change much in terms of anything else. Like my exercises was pretty much the same. In fact, I'd probably been working out less. Mm -hmm. So like I knew that it was 100% related to the foods that I was eating. Yeah. And it's so interesting that people say, oh, it's just water weight, right? When you start a new way of eating or start addressing food sensitivities, but the water weight, if it's related to inflammation, it's very important that that goes. You don't want, you want the inflammation to go. You want um, your body to be in a a lowered state of chronic, like you don't want chronic inflammation. What you were saying is acute inflammation is beneficial because it's helping the healing process, but this chronic low-grade inflammation can cause all kinds of, it's essentially at the core of every health issue, depression, um, and then chronic injury and chronic pain and all kinds of things. So that's yeah. so interesting. Yeah. And uh, so, okay, one of the things you m- uh, mentioned before we um, started recording was that a lot of people don't know the difference between plant-based and vegan. And how would you define the differences? Yeah. So I feel like a lot of this, again, comes down to a little bit of a stigma, but the way that I differentiate the two of them is vegan is more of a lifestyle and plant-based is more of a diet. So like in a vegan lifestyle, you're also, again, you're, you're like, it's usually because you're, um, you're, you want to support animals and you're, um, pro like animals. So you're, you don't want to have them suffer. You don't want them to be like killed for no reason. You don't want to be using like their animal skin and fur and things like that. So like you also, um, you also go for like 
non-cruelty um where it comes to like clothing or um, even like the things like skincare where they're not doing any testing on animals so that's usually when people are vegan they incorporate all of that into their lifestyle so it's not just the diet so that's i feel like the biggest determining factor and also um plant-based i've noticed people associate that with more of just like whole foods and eating like real foods that are nourishing versus eating like some people associate vegan with like, um, let's say like the Beyond Burger or something that's very artificial and it's not like it's overly processed fake meats and people associate that with the vegan lifestyle as well. So mm-hmm. there's there's a little bit of, I feel like there's like a variation. Everyone's some type of vegan on that scale, mm-hmm. but it depends on whether it's like you're including your lifestyle, whether you're eating like the processed junky foods or just like a fully whole foods plant-based. Mm-hmm. Makes a lot of sense, right? It's like you're, you're um, so, you know, you might choose French fries or a Beyond Burger because your main goal is to avoid animal products. And whereas if you're plant-based, that's not necessarily, I mean, maybe that's, that's a side benefit or maybe it's part of the reason why you choose this particular way of eating, but you're also, health is one of the priorities. And so you're going to be choosing foods that are, that are um, aligning you with health every step of the way or as best you can. Mm-hmm. I mean, no one's hundred percent perfect. That's not what we're seeing. But um, so when I think of plant-based too, like one of the things that comes to my mind is like, I'm like, I feel like everyone should be plant-based when I think of the name plant-based. Um, you know, so if 80% of one's diet uh, comes from plants, even if it's not 100%, like what, what are your thoughts on that? Like, I just yeah, couldn't. so I actually recommend like an 80% plant-based diet to most people. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the types of foods that you're going to be choosing and the things that you're eating should be for your body and for what you need. But essentially, that it's like what you said, you're focusing on like 80% like plant sourced foods. So you're eating real foods that are like grown. So not things that are made artificially and um, focusing on like vegetables and fruits and whole grains and things that are basically real foods. And then the the 20% could be um, whether it's like the meats or like the the seafood or um, the processed foods. You want to like, you don't necessarily need all of that. Mm-hmm. And again, it comes down to these labels that we just put on for, I, I don't know if it's just like for belonging or there's like, like you have to identify yourself with these things. So sometimes I don't even like to label it as like an 80% plant-based diet. It's just, you're just eating the foods that you need to for health essentially. Mm-hmm. And if you want to eat more meat, then eat more meat. If you want to eat less meat, eat less meat. Hmm. Totally. Yeah. I was, I was, I'm just, yeah, because I think, um, one thing that I'm, I think we, we talked about before where I was like, yeah, I feel like my diet is plant-based or okay. Like today I was plant-based, but I had uh, a couple of eggs. I had some chicken and I had fish oil supplements. So that's not technically plant-based, but removing those three foods for my body wouldn't have made the diet healthier. So it is in, in essence a plant-based diet, but it has those extra ingredients that that are just better for my own genetics as mm-hmm. a part Neanderthal, apparently, according to my <laughs> genetics, maybe I need a bit more protein. And some people might benefit from that. But it's it's about like, yeah, like you said, like just building from the ground up. Like how, what does my body need? What are the foods my body is not into? 
Um, and I think both of us likely because, you know, you, you saw an ND and you're also in the realm of nutrition and I'm an ND. Um, this is all, this is an ongoing exploration, right? Like what foods can I really just not tolerate? And for me, it's gluten, dairy, and then refined sugars for sure. Um, but it's, it's sort of this, in, this invitation for each individual to discover that as opposed to reading on the internet, okay, plant-based or keto or paleo, and then just going for it. I mean, it might be a, an entryway into exploring um, food choices, but it's this idea of like building your own individual way of eating, which is really cool. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. And I feel like this is something that everyone can explore because honestly, the way that I did it was you cut out foods for a little while and you just see how you feel. And if you don't like them, you don't eat them. Or obviously you can work with a naturopathic doctor and like work to maybe try to reintroduce those foods so that you don't react poorly to those kinds of foods if possible. Mm -hmm. But yeah. This is awesome. Yeah. Well, let's talk about, so we, we've been grazing over the idea of food sensitivities and how they might relate to inflammation and food sensitivity. Testing is something that, you, that helped you hone in on something you were already exploring. Um, but yeah, let's talk about that. So, so, how, so how you first, with the ND that you were working with, started to delve into um, cutting out foods and you were already lactose intolerant, but maybe you could speak a bit about that. Yeah. So I feel like I did a lot of that on my own because when I, even before I had started seeing an ND, I already had this idea because a lot of other people had brought to me like, oh, dairy uh, causes acne. And I had no idea that I was, I was not lactose intolerant at that time. I just started feeling like maybe I don't react well to dairy because I just felt like my skin just felt worse after. And I had never made that connection between the inflammation and the cysts and the acne. And then it was just a suggestion that the ND was like, why don't you just actually cut out dairy and see how you feel? And it was such a hard process at the beginning because I wasn't lactose intolerant. I wasn't feeling any symptoms that I noticed because I had normalized those symptoms. And I think that was the issue for me. So it wasn't until I actually cut it out fully and I was like, off of it for a few weeks that I actually realized, okay, maybe I am sensitive to dairy. Maybe I do feel these symptoms because I'm not feeling them anymore. So that was how I actually started understanding food sensitivities because they don't teach you this. It's always like you're allergic to something, you have something like hives or you have like a really bad reaction to it. You don't really associate foods with having these kinds of other symptoms like bloating or like gas or cystic acne, right? Like it's just it's not something that people talk about. So that was my first exploration into it. I didn't really know too much about the sensitivities until then. It can be really counterintuitive, right? Because we, we assume that it's going to be something we just ate that's causing the symptoms. And then when there are these chronic symptoms like brain fog or yeah, like you said, it's just you're normal. So maybe you feel tired. Mm -hmm. Maybe you feel like, oh, this is just how my brain works. I, I always take a nap at 2 p.m., you know, I always have this kind of knee, this twinge in my knee or this knee pain or this ache or whatever it is, um, or acne. And, and, you know, it's not related to diet because when I eat a bunch of milk, I don't notice that I break out necessarily. Um, and there's this idea of chronic low-grade inflammation related to uh, low-grade inflammation in the gut that can be caused by a food sensitivity, which you mentioned is different from an allergy, which would produce an immediate reaction. You would get hives or you would get uh, maybe anaphylaxis or something severe and need an EpiPen, that whole thing like the peanut allergy um, versus you mentioned lactose intolerance, which would be, again, a more immediate reaction because you're, you, you're, your body's just not breaking down that food. It lacks the enzyme to even break down one of the components of, 
of lactose or of dairy products, but this idea of the sensitivity, it's like the process is to eliminate a food, like you said, for a few weeks, observe a reduction in symptoms. But often I find the kicker is when the food is reintroduced because we do it in a dramatic way. So you're probably invited to like go wild with your dairy, like for three days, just have dairy like three times a day to provoke a response or, or maybe not for three days until you get a response. Did, did you do that process? Did you do the... the- I didn't actually. I, I don't think I ever reintroduced it back in. So yeah, I, did, I just like once I became severely lactose intolerant, I was like, okay, I can't do this anyways because I was like popping lactate pills all the time. And I was just like, I can't deal with these symptoms. I'm just going to cut it out completely. And for me, dairy was like a I know I'm not going to reintroduce that into my life again. Mm-hmm. I feel like I could probably test it out. So it's been, I think, two and a half years now since I've been fully plant-based. So mm-hmm. it, I mean, it's been long enough that I have not had eggs or meat. And like, it would be interesting to see if I did reintroduce them at this point, what would happen. But I never actually tried it when I first started cutting out the foods. And sometimes you don't really want to or need to, right? You're like, I kind of, I feel better and I know it's this thing. So why would I want to feel terrible? I know when I I did a reintroduction, maybe a few years back and it felt like a hangover. It felt like I'd, I'd binge drank the night before and the next day I was completely useless. I felt like I almost needed to apologize to patients as I was not on my game. (laughs) (laughs) So a lot of people want to avoid that. It's like, well, I kind of know I feel better by avoiding this food. Um, Yeah. Very interesting. And then, and then you mentioned this like process of just ongoing tweaks to your diet and how, how does that look? So I started with the processed foods cause that was, I knew that that obviously is not good for health. I don't feel like it's good for anyone's health. <laughs> Maybe I'm biased, but, um, so I started with, um, I think I started with flour first, like taking out the white flours, maybe just trying to transition into like a whole wheat pastry where it's similar, but still not quite the best for you. And it's always been like a step process. Like, um, and I wait for maybe like finishing it and not having brought in any new flour into the house and like trying new things and just kind of slowly, gradually doing it. I never do it all at once, like cold turkey, because I know I'm never going to stick to that kind of habit. So it's always been a very slow, gradual process of doing that. And I did the same kind of thing with sugar. Like I, I used to eat white sugar all the time because that's just what we had in our house growing up. It's just something that you're used to. You just normalize it as being, this is sugar. And then I learned about like, okay, cane sugar, that's a little bit less processed. I switched from white to cane. And then I started switching into like, uh, um, I do a little bit more like maple syrup, honey, or um, coconut palm sugar. Those are my favorite ones. Mm-hmm. But uh, I've also been like trying to reduce the amount that I put into food. So it's always been like a slow process. And every time I, it's always like experimenting in the kitchen, right? Like mm-hmm. I love to bake. So for me, it's just trying to find that balance where it still tastes good, but it's kind of healthy. And then you also, your, your taste buds change as you do this too, right? Like you, if you can't, if you have a lot of sugar and then you just have none the next day, you're going to notice it and it's going to be harder to stick to it. So mm-hmm. that's why I like to do it gradually like this. So I've been work like it's always a process. I'm always working on making things healthier as much as possible. Hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's like there's no end point to health. Like nobody's walking around like I eat perfectly. Like this is just no such thing. 
And I think it's beautiful, this idea of having a goal or sort of knowing what direction you want to move into and, and making that a gradual process that just becomes second nature. Because I think nobody, I mean, our jobs are to think about health and food, but the average person is not interested in being obsessed and, and nitpicking over everything. And that's probably not healthy. Like that enters the territory of orthorexia. And so you kind of just want it to be um, something that serves you and something that you just do automatically. And so it's like, you build a repertoire of recipes or uh, recipe tweaks that you may be doing by adding different ways to sweeten your recipes. And it just, it doesn't even become something you think about. You go to the grocery store and you buy your regular things and it probably doesn't involve white sugar anymore. And that's not something that you have to use willpower. It sounds like to, to do. Um, And it's just, yeah, like you're just slowly changing habits and tweaking things to, to get to move in the direction that you want to. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like, like you said, there's no end to it. You can always improve on it. But then if you're in this mindset of, oh, I need to be healthy and you're restricting yourself and you're cutting out everything all at once, I feel like that's unhealthy. Just like Mm -hmm. having so much focus on what you're eating all the time. I don't know anyone who can keep up with that. Like, I don't have time for that. (laughs) Totally. Right. Or if you're, yeah, you're, if you're constantly restraining yourself, I think of it as like holding a beach ball underwater, right? You're like, yeah. eventually you're going to let release because nobody can, can, can create that sort of energy for forever. And it's going to pop up. And then, um, and then p- there's a sense of failure. There's often this phenomenon of going way back or people say, oh, I went on vacation. Everything kind of um, went off the rails. And, and that's not it. Like we want to, we want to build in relation, um, vacation and birthday parties and, you know, things into our lives. And, and not yeah. make it all about willpower. and um, Absolutely. Like, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I still eat white sugar. It's just not as often because, like, I've lost that taste, the affinity for it. I just don't like it anymore. And I know it's not good for me because I feel like crap right afterwards. But you mm-hmm. want to still have those indulgences. You want to still be able to have fun and enjoy life so you're not completely restricting yourself. That's the way I love it, at least. Totally. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, if, if there's yeah, a slice of cake at a birthday party, yeah, sure. Like, I'll go for it. That's awesome. And uh, you mentioned like, so what do you, uh, how do you work with people when, they, when they're moving towards a plant-based diet or are there specific ways that you will coach people around, you know, moving in this direction of health? Because we were talking about you, but how do you work with clients to, or patients? Yeah. So if they're interested, I mean, obviously they need to want it because if you don't want it, you're not going to stick to it. But if they're, if like the goal is health, I want to focus more so on the processed foods and like even like the processed meats and like those types of things, getting that out first and replacing it with something that's sustainable. So something that they can actually incorporate into their routines, something that they can stick to. And then also it, it involves the entire family, right? So if you're going to be cooking and everyone else is eating, then you obviously want to make sure that everyone's eating. If you're making like seven different meals for seven different people, you can't sustain that. So you also have to think about like the dynamics of how you're going to be incorporating all this. in. so I do a very individual base. Like if someone wants to go straight into plant-based, like I am helpful in the way that I can like help them like transition what types of foods to switch for what, because sometimes that's the issue, like trying to find a replacement for something. I find that that's probably the biggest hurdle for most people. Um, when it comes to things like dairy, that's a little bit easier. Plant-based milks are, are available like everywhere. So that's so easy to switch up easily. But things like butter, that's a little bit harder. Um, 
things like eggs, that's really difficult. So like helping them try to find different things. And also you're, you want to stay away from maybe even calling it the same thing. Like you don't want to call it a vegan egg if that's if it's like the mindset kind of behind it. So transitioning people also involves like, for example, you want to, you want to make sure that they understand that this is not necessarily a replacement for the food. It's just a new way of eating. So for me, if I have like a tofu scramble for breakfast, some people are like, oh, it's like a replacement for a scrambled egg. But no, it doesn't taste anything like that. But if you go in with that mindset of like, this is a replacement for a scrambled egg, and it doesn't taste like that, you're going to hate it. And then you're not going to want to eat it again, because you're just missing the eggs. So it's, there's a lot of different ways to kind of go about it. But like mindset is one thing that I work on trying to transition different types of foods. That's something I work on and I do it gradually. So I never tell anyone to cut out everything all at once. Like if you want to cut out dairy, you want to maybe try replacing the milk in your coffee that's it. Like we want to start one step at a time. And once you start liking the taste of it and you're like a little bit more, um, like you want to experiment a little bit more, then we can go into replacing like butter or something else. Like we don't want to take out a whole food group at once. So that's the way I approach it. And if it's something like a maybe like a sensitivity or an allergy, then we want to go a little bit faster because we want to actually see if there's any kind of issues with, for example, inflammation, if that helps to resolve people's like pain or chronic symptoms that they've been experiencing. Cause that's the main reason that people come to see me. It's usually the pain. And that's how we kind of associate that with inflammation. And then that leads to exploring different foods. So there's usually a reason that people come in to see me. It's not just because they want to go plant-based. So that's the way that I approach things for the most part. But yeah, if like diet's the only thing you want to work on, <laughs> I can also help with that as well. But that's really cool. Yeah, right. Because you're employing these different tools. You're like, well, you know, if this person is suffering from chronic pain, I mean, we can do all the adjustments in the world and address the, the musculoskeletal system. But if there's this chronic inflammation that you're sensing based on that could be based in part by diet, you're sort of like, you know, it, it'd be wonderful if the person's open to exploring that with you and, and just allowing yeah. it, you know, using another tool. I love the idea of mindset, actually. It's, it's something that, um, you know, in this idea of tofu scramble doesn't taste like scrambled eggs or an omelet. So let's not even call it that or frame it in that way, because it's just going to leave you disappointed and missing your eggs. Um, it's interesting, like I, I would, I've made a, um, I have this lentil flatbread that I make and it, it's a um, blended lentils, flax and water. And you can use, you can use it for all kinds of different things. And I use it for pizza, quote unquote, crust. But pizza is dough and, and cheese, and I don't <laughs> – none of those things are things I eat. And so it'll just be like that lentil flatbread with, flatbread with different um, toppings. And I invited my brother over for quote-unquote pizza, and it was like – it was almost like I um, assaulted him. Like he was like, you call – don't call that pizza and <laughs> ever again. That's not pizza. And I was like, yeah, I should have just said, come over for lentil flatbread with vegetables on top of it. it would have been. Right. It's so true. And I feel like that happens with people who don't eat this way and they already like 
they're so against eating that way. So yeah, <laughs> you have right. to be careful with your choice of words. Because <laughs> like, you, you're like, well, for me, this is like the closest thing to pizza. I've had in a while. This is so exciting. And for him, he was like expecting like pizza, pizza. I don't know. And so, yeah, so definitely you don't want to set people up for disappointment or like call. Absolutely. Um, It's so funny you mentioned this because when you go to like a plant-based restaurant, that's literally what they call the foods because for people who've been plant-based for so long, like that is literally the closest thing to pizza. So you're going to get something that's totally probably gluten-free, doesn't have any kind of wheat. There's no cheese. It's like a vegan cheese. So it doesn't even taste like cheese. And it's it's pizza, but it's not pizza. Like for all intents and purposes, it is. But if you're if you're just walking out of like an Italian pizza place, like you're not you're not going to be happy probably. So it's, exactly. yeah, it's going to just take it for what it is. And and uh, yeah, same goes for black bean brownies. Every time, I'm like, want some brownies? And then you, I don't know, try a normal brownie from a brownie mix from Costco. You're like, oh whoa, that's why people don't like these black bean brownies that I make <laughs> for me. They're amazing. <laughs> so. <laughs> But it's, it's all about this thing. Like, so this is, but this is the whole thing, right? It's everybody has different tastes and needs. And for some people, it's just not worth it to eat pizza. And, and that's not everybody. And it doesn't mean that everyone has to be that way. There are, I think it's important too, and, uh, you know, that there's no value judgment around food. Um, like maybe, yeah, there are things that generally are maybe not great for everyone. Like you maybe don't want a flour-based, sugar-based diet. But I think one thing that can happen is that, um, we're all trying to find the answer and we're all trying to find the answer to our health issues. And so people will sort of pick one thing that's the devil or that's the ans- that's the, the reason for every health issue, whether it's omega-6 fats or whether it's animal products or whether it's gluten. And it's, we're just way too complicated for that, you know? And, and so it really is about discovering if that's true for you. And, and I heard one person frame it as like, what, what can you get away with? Um, you know, so, you know, are you the kind of person that can't drink any wine at all? Or can you have a glass a week or, you know, and, and just really negotiating with yourself and, and trying to understand your body and how it responds to certain foods is really part of the journey, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. And like you said, you don't have to fully cut it out completely. Like if you can tolerate one glass of wine a week, then mm-hmm. have it. It's not really going to make a huge difference in the overall scheme of things. Mm-hmm. Totally. This is cool. Yeah. And then with inflammation as well, like, um, can you speak a little bit more about it in terms of like what things you find are helpful for people you work with? Like if they're suffering from chronic inflammation. So there's so many things. I feel like inflammation is caused by a lot of different things, but there are also so many different aspects that you need to assess and maybe work on or improve in all areas of your health. So my approach is very holistic. So I not only treat like the physical symptoms, but I'm also talking a lot about mindset because our thoughts and our like behaviors and stuff. And sometimes that relates actually to brain inflammation, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. And that can lead to things like mental health conditions, like anxiety and depression. And I see a lot of people who have a lot of these types of symptoms all at once. So that kind of gives you that clue that there's some kind of inflammation going on to begin with. And then you also want to address like lifestyle issues maybe they're not sleeping well. Poor sleep is also associated with high levels of inflammation. Maybe they're not managing their stress well enough. So you want to address that. And we can do things like meditation and um, a lot of like mindfulness or um, 
even sometimes like gratitude journaling or journaling in general is really helpful. So we want to address like the mental side of things as well, the mental health aspect of it. And then you also want to, um, what else do I do? I do a little bit of like, especially movement. Movement is so important. We don't move enough. And that also makes things really kind of stagnant and that doesn't help with our lymph flow. And if you aren't aware, like your inflammation cells are inside of your lymph so the circulation of your lymphatic system it's it's done by movement because it's not the same as your circulatory system where there is like a pump your heart is actually moving the blood and there's all these valves and stuff to help with the flow you actually have to move to get your lymph to move and that also helps to reduce the localized inflammation in certain areas so movement is a huge part of it so i address all of those things because i feel like if there's even like if you address it from one aspect you're still going to have all the other things leading to the inflammation so i feel like a holistic approach is the best way to do it so that's the way i treat my patients mm, right it's like stacking these various things like get you moving move the lymph reduce any any foods that could be contributing to this chronic inflammation work on this on the skeletal system to make sure that things are in alignment and like working up like we have as nds the therapeutic order it's similar i think in any healing profession where we're trying to pull in all the different factors that could benefit the person to address it holistically. It's never one thing. I mean, rarely, right? Um, Especially when things are chronic. Yeah. And people have been dealing with this stuff for so long. So they've been doing these types of things. Like maybe they're not sleeping well for years. Like that takes a long time to kind of reverse too. So these things also take time to heal. And like the inflammation takes a long time for for it to go down as well. So even chronic pain, like it takes many years to get to that point also takes many years to get out of that point. So Mm -hmm. it's a lot of, it's a lot of work. (laughs) Right. I'm interested in the, the mindset and, and how you're finding mindset could lead to inflammation. Like, can you speak about that? That's really interesting. So I've read a lot of research showing how things like depression and anxiety and like all these like a lot of mental uh, illnesses can be caused by inflammation in the brain. And that might be probably caused by inflammation in the gut. So there's a huge connection between like the gut and the brain. I'm sure you talk about this a lot as well. So that's where it stems from. And then you... um, you like your thoughts and stuff like you inflammation kind of makes everything more sensitive. So if you have any kind of sensitivity, like to pain, there's usually a chance that there's the nervous system being involved. So whether that's inflammation along the spine, the nerves or the brain, that's usually where you get it. And that actually amplifies all of your symptoms. So it makes everything feel a lot worse than it actually is. So Mm -hmm. that's where the connection comes from. So things like um, the research that I've read, things like mindfulness, CBT, Um, doing things like the um, affirmations, just being more positive with our thoughts and meditation have actually all been shown to reduce brain inflammation, which again, helps you feel less pain because you're perceiving less pain because the brain is where you perceive your pain. It's different for everybody. Everyone's going to feel a different level of pain. But if you have a lot of inflammation, you're more sensitive, you feel more pain. So Mm -hmm. if we can start to reduce that, it doesn't necessarily like the pain levels don't necessarily tell us how much damage is done in the body or how much like tissue damage there is, whether it's like a really big injury or a small injury. So everyone's going to feel a different level of pain. So 
that's why we want to address it from all those areas. But I really like having that brain inflammation go down as well so that people feel less pain and they feel better. It's, yeah, it's a, a great way to frame it, actually, because this is one of the issues is that we enter into these vicious cycles. So yes, inflammation, low-grade inflammation, maybe rising from the gut or wherever else in the body could cause depression, anxiety, or, or just low mood. But what if that depression, anxiety, low mood generates depressed, anxious, low thoughts that then feed back on that inflammation? Um, because it is true. I mean, those kind of thoughts, like we know from CBT, that our thoughts can form can, can influence our emotional states. And then those emotional states are chemically based and that can feed back on the inflammation. And then this idea of pain as subjective. And my dad would joke that, so he gets headaches. He used to before he was gluten-free and he would go to doctors and they would say, Oh, it's all in your head. And he's like, well, yeah, it's a headache. (laughs) And, and I think this can be seen as dismiss, dismiss, a dismissal, right? Like your pain is subjective, but there is a subjective nature to pain. And, um, it reminds me of, like, I I remember, sorry, it's like a story, but in, um, I, I did a 10 day silent Vipassana meditation retreat in 2018 and it's, extre- it's an extremely painful process and maybe not a great process for your skeletal system and your muscles because you're sitting for 12 hours a day in the same posture. And that could be pretty excruciating, even for someone who doesn't suffer from um, any like specific joint issues. Um, but I think it was around day five where we started entering into um, a practice, like the actual Vipassana practice where we weren't allowed to move for an hour at a time. So we were allowed, maybe you can adjust your your your, um, your hands, um, but you can't cross or uncross your feet. You can't change your, um, you know, you, you can't stand up or anything like that. So you're, you're, you're sitting without moving. And the amount of pain that I was feeling was, was horrific. Um, and then at one point, something inside me just, just let go. And one thing I learned was that it was about the resistance to the pain and the relationship with it. And, um, it was a really, it was a really interesting experience. It was like, I mean, it's not good, obviously, to push past pain. That's not what I'm saying, but it was this idea of, um, it, it, it was about this, this almost this um, low-level muscular tension or muscular resistance. I was in, employing to brace against the pain that was further creating tension and further causing more pain. Um, and so, this idea of using mindfulness to work with chronic pain, like migraines or chronic back pain has been really powerful in in research. Yeah, that sounds like a really intense experience. It's crazy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, it's funny how that happens, right? Like it just took a shift in your mindset to kind of push past that pain, so to speak, not necessarily like pushing past it, but you probably started feeling less once you started becoming more mindful of it. And it's a lot of Again, like it's a lot of the mindset, right? So yeah, it might be all in your head, (laughs) but it stems from somewhere. So it is physiological still in some sense, but yeah. Well, yeah, like if you have arthritis, it's not all in your head. The pain's (laughs) being perceived there, but it's starting from your knee. Um, But it's, it's you know, and obviously... I mean, pain is, is our, it's, it's a communication from our body to our brain to, to influence our behaviors. So it doesn't, when we feel pain, it's, um, a lot of that communication is about immobilizing or not moving that part that's experiencing pain to, to prevent injury. Um, 
but in a lot of cases, that's not necessarily correct, right? So with osteoarthritis, you, you should be moving. And so um, your, your knee is sending you um, signals that you, you should stop moving. Um, and sometimes we, we need to rewire that a little bit. Um, yeah, I feel like there's a lot of fear associated with that. As soon as you feel pain, you're like, oh, I shouldn't move it because moving hurts and that causes more pain. And then you feel like it won't get better. It'll just get worse. But in fact, like for most cases, there's it's very rare that you would be told not to move. So movement is usually really helpful. Even though there's pain, you want to, of course, keep that tolerable because you don't want to have it like cause more pain and like lasting pain, but there is like a little bit of pain usually associated with it. And I feel like people are scared of that. So they kind of stay away from the movement. But in fact, it's usually really helpful because again, it's going to help move your lymphatic system. It's going to help with the inflammation. So you'll eventually feel less pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's usually like pain at the onset and stiffness, and then it decreases as you keep moving. And but we're, we're, you know, we are taught or our instinct is to not move when we feel pain and discomfort. Um, What other mindset techniques, like, can you walk us through it a little bit more and talk a bit more about that? Like what kind of mindset techniques you employ for decreasing inflammation and things like that? Um, Yeah, I think I focus a lot on meditation. For me, like the breathing aspect and being able to breathe through the pain is really helpful. And it's also, it leads back into when we're scared or when we're like afraid or when we have pain, you actually stop breathing into the belly. So this is, um, that's not good for many reasons. That helps with actually calming you down. So it helps you move into more of like that parasympathetic state. So I, even if you're like, I don't want to meditate, I don't know how to meditate. I'm like, if you are worried about like bringing up painful thoughts or anything, I always tell people just to focus on the breath. And that's really all you need to do. And that is meditation in itself. Like that's, that's the main thing that I focus on. So breathing is probably one of the most helpful tools that I find. And it's also good from a core strength perspective, because a lot of people don't know this, but your diaphragm is a core muscle. So if you're, for example, having back pain, and you need to work on your core strength, breathing is going to help you reduce that, the tension, the anxiety, the stress and the things like that from like a more of a mental state, it's also going to help you um, strengthen your diaphragm, which is a core muscle. So you'll actually start feeling less pain once you start putting more strength into the areas that have either become weak over time because, again, you're scared to breathe because breathing is one of the things that I feel like goes the first. Like it's the first thing that people stop doing as soon as they feel pain. You like hold your breath, you're like terrified. But I find that that one is probably, it's such an easy tool. Everyone can do it. And it's really one of the most helpful things. So I hope with breathing and Mm -hmm. that starts to shift your mindset because you're also, you're focusing on the breath rather than the pain. Mm -hmm. And then I always help people come back to that tool Mm -hmm. and yeah. And depending on the type of mindset that someone comes in with, we'll work on that. It's more individual. I don't really see one thing more than the other, but I find a lot of people are just scared and that's, really, it's just like everything, their decisions are all coming from fear because they're afraid that anything that they do is going to worsen the pain. So they don't do anything. So Mm -hmm. they wait for suggestions from me or from other people like physiotherapists or whatever. And yeah, I think working on like the breathing and the, the fear is probably the best things 
that help mm. people from a mindset perspective. Mm. It's really, it can be really powerful breathing. Like it actually is the parasympathetic nervous system, as you said. And then this, even this idea of breathing into the area of pain has this relaxing effect and moves the energy through the body. Like even in traditional Chinese medicine, this idea of chi, but even this sensation of how this like underlying muscle tension where we guard around a painful area that actually, like I mentioned before, contributes to, to furthering pain and through breathing, you sort of just, you know, try and um, subconsciously relax those areas. Yeah. Mm. And just kind of lean into it a little Mm -hmm. bit. Right. This idea of it. Yeah. Like being with, I think um, I used to suffer from migraines. Um, Not as much now since taking out gluten. (laughs) That was just my individual, like my own experience, but um, just get being cute. There's almost a sense of being curious about the migraine. Um, And so sometimes um, just, just feeling it and just being with it and it's not pleasant, but and there are moments of real unpleasantness, but it's not just a chronic unpleasantness. Like it'll be a pulsation. There's a radiation to it. It's like looking at it as an observer. And that's a very mindfulness based attitude towards pain. But, and it doesn't make, it doesn't mean I want it or, you know, or I want it to keep going. And sometimes I will just grab an Advil to get on with my day. But, um, but this, but, but, but relating to it in a different way is really interesting. And I think if it's, someone who's dealing with chronic pain that just can't do Advil every day. It's an interesting technique to start using. Um, Yeah. And it's difficult because when you've been in that pain, that state of like being in pain all the time and constantly being in it, it's really hard to see yourself without pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It takes a lot of practice. Mm. Yeah. That's yeah. I mean, there's, there's a whole thing there. It's like there, we can identify with it. Yeah. What do you see with that? I know that's very individualized, but. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I guess I'll, maybe I'll tell you a bit about my personal story because Mm. it wasn't until I actually started doing this. So it was a lot of, I started off with the physical treatment of the chronic pain and then it went to the nutrition side of things. And then I started exploring all of this. So like from a mindset perspective, just from a mindfulness, um, doing meditation and like actually thinking about not feeling pain. And that was really what started shifting things for me. So I figured like there's something here. So I'm still on the process of actually researching a lot of this stuff. There's a whole new world that's kind of opened up to me, especially in the last couple of years. And I've been slowly starting to teach people the things that I've learned and trying to incorporate things like meditation. It's just, it's such an easy thing to do, but there's so many different levels to it. Like you can really go deep with your meditations. You can really focus in on the source of the pain and it takes that practice. So like, it just takes so much time for you to get to that place. But once you start it and you go onto this journey of like, you're just like kind of focusing on that pain-free level, you can easily get there. And that's what's really helped me a lot. So that's what I try to teach a lot of my patients who've been in that state for a long time. Like just start very slow, do small things, and it's not going to feel good right away because we're not used to this idea of meditation or like focusing on our breath. So Mm -hmm. that's where I start everyone off. And then 
it depends on where it leads. Like everyone goes in different directions after that. Some people don't like it at all. And they just don't want to do that type of treatment. Some people are super into it and they like find huge transformations. So I find it, it's so, it's so important. And I, I've learned this from a coach of mine who I think got it from Tony Robbins, but they said mindset is 80% of the work and 20% of it is just strategy. Mm. So if you're not really focusing on your mindset, if you're not like thinking of positive outcomes, if you're like, oh, I'm going to be stuck with this pain forever. There's literally no hope for me. There's nothing I can do about it. Those are the negative thoughts that keep us stuck. So we want to shift towards a more positive outlook and like feeling like there's hope and having someone there to support you and coach you through it and making sure that you like sometimes we just lose that sense of thought, right? Like you feel like you're stuck. You feel like you're trapped and that there's nothing that you can do. So just having someone there to kind of say, no, you can do this. You can be pain-free. It's totally possible because it's helped so many other people. And just having like that light at the end of the tunnel, I feel like is really helpful. Mm, totally. Right. Cause especially considering that healing is not necessarily a linear process that when we go into these, if it's a two steps forward, one step back kind of situation, which for a lot of people it is, when we have that one step back, it can be um, really disappointing or defeating. And it's nice to have somebody um, with the bird's eye view coaching you along. Um, I wonder, yeah, like with the, um, the meditation. And so when you're talking about your own story and trying to, um, I mean, often when, with meditation, you know, when you turn towards pain, it can amplify initially. Is that what you found? Yeah, absolutely. Because you're not really sure what you're doing. I found myself just focusing on the pain, but it wasn't until I included the breathing and like actually relaxing that you kind of distract yourself a little bit. I mean, that's not the best word. I don't like the word distraction because we want to feel our feelings. We want to like, those are valid feelings. You don't want to say like, well, this pain is not real and like dismiss it totally. You want to actually feel it. But then it's when you start to feel it and when you start to focus on it and then you like, feel like you're in control of it you can start to like not feel it basically right right like it's it was interesting just in the context of migraines where especially so pain is is or any sensation or emotion is this um dynamic thing it's a phenomenon and so there'll be these there would be these moments with my migraines when it would be gone fleeting moments would be pulsating right throbbing but in between the throbs, there's nothing. And then the throb will come. And it was one thing I noticed, and again, this is mindfulness that creates these realizations, but it was the anticipation of the painful moment that was, that was where all my suffering was. Because yeah, pain and suffering that. are connected, but, not, <laughs> but they're not the same thing. Um, and, and, and the pain was one sensation, uh, a physical sensation, and the suffering was something that I was creating. Mm-hmm. Um, I was able to see that. And um, it is very interesting. I mean, again, not always fun. And like you were saying, um, you know, it's not easy to turn towards it. It doesn't feel good. And it's not like, oh, woohoo, now I'm going to go and hang out with friends with this migraine. But it, it was just a different way of being with it mm-hmm. than to get I feel into it. Like- yeah. Yeah, I feel like what you said is like your the anticipa- 
the anticipation of it is usually worse than what it actually is. And it's a lot, it goes back into like the anxiety, like you're worrying about things that you don't know are actually true. Mm, Right. Totally. Right. And I mean, anything that we're saying about physical pain, um, I mean, emotions can be very embodied and very physical and any, you know, it's, this is the whole, the whole realm of healing, like in any way that we suffer or in any way that we feel emotional pain or emotional suffering or um, whether it's like chronic fatigue or any of this stuff. Um, yeah, it can be applied to all of it, essentially. Yeah, I've read a little bit about how we carry our emotions physically. And I think there's a book by, I feel like it's Louise Hay. Don't quote me on that. But um, I think it's mm. something about we can heal our life or something. I yes. can't even remember it. I haven't read it yet. It's on my list to read, but that dives a lot deeper into like certain areas of our body carry certain emotions. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. I like that's something that I'm trying to explore right now for right. myself. I mean, well, people will notice this. Like right? when we tap into more body awareness, we can find maybe stresses where we care or we carry um, stress in our shoulders. Um, or this baseline tension that we feel more comfortable at or, or more normal at. And um, and it's interesting, yeah, that book that you're talking about, it's like you kind of look through specific symptoms and then it will go into a core emotional issue that might, that, that issue might be stemming from. And I can't think of any in, in specifically, but, um, you know, it'll be like your, your le- pain in your left shoulder means this. And I, I found like we would work with this in clinic when I was a fourth year student, uh, an intern. Um, we actually had a, a similar book. It wasn't the Louise Hay book, but it was a book called um, "Not When the Body Messages from the Body." So it was sort of like a binder, and we would go through and print off um, these messages for patients. And so it's like, oh, you have acne. Well, here's what it says about acne. Uh, and this is the idea of mind body medicine. And I think it would just start a conversation. That was the most interesting part about it. Because the patient, it would say something about like, I don't know, this is the example that comes to mind, but I don't even think this was an example. It was like something about, oh, it's your relationship with your mother or something. And then that would start a conversation around that. And, you know, and it it would also be framed as, you know, if this doesn't fit you, you can, you can leave it. You don't need to, um, you know, you don't need to start looking for where you and your mom are not connecting or whatever it is if your relationship is great. But this is just an an idea. Um, It would always be very interesting. Yeah. I feel like this is something that I kind of realized on my own before I knew it even was a thing. Like I, certain stressors I noticed, like certain emotions, if I like not feeling like you're good enough at something, that would sort of trigger some of the pain that I had. It was really interesting. And that's how I kind of came across it. I was, I thought I was the only one. <laughs> how did, how did you find that? Like, how did you make that connection? I feel like it was just because I've been So when you're like feeling constant pain all the time, this is really hard to distinguish because you haven't had those days where you're pain-free, but I've been working on my chronic pain for so many years now to the point where I barely feel it. So it was something that I, it's not normal for me anymore because the pain has not, it's not normalized anymore. Mm -hmm. So those pain-free days are what I relate it to. And then I feel myself feeling the pain and then I start noticing what is it that I'm thinking about? What am I doing right now? Who am I speaking to? What kinds of things are happening around me in my environment? And that's when I realized a lot of what I was triggering this pain with was emotions and stress 
So that's kind of where it started for me. Mm, that's awesome. That's that's like we talk about like, you know, I'm sure you um, use things like, like headache diaries or, or things like that where you're trying to pull in all of the var- possible variables and you did this deep dive with that. Like what are the specific circumstances in every, like how, let me run through my day basically. And um, on a deep level, uh, you know, like what are my specific emotions or how am I relating to these situations? And then you pull that together of it's, it's this core, I'm not good enough or almost like an imposter syndrome that would trigger that, that would trigger the stress likely that then activated the pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is what I usually tell a lot of my patients and clients and stuff to do is like keep track of things that happen throughout the day because when you're feeling the pain, you don't really realize it. But then when you had a good day and you have something to compare it to, you can go back and notice these patterns and things that kind of trigger your pain and then try to deal with it that way. You can't necessarily remove them out of your life completely. Like for example, if it's your job that's causing your stress, like mm-hmm. the obvious answer would be to quit your job. And that's not something that you can do in most cases, but mm-hmm trying to at least relate these to something that is actually stressing you out or like the reason that you're feeling the pain can be really helpful in terms of maybe reducing that stress or managing it properly or like finding tools and mechanisms that you can use to cope with it so that you're not necessarily going all the way from feeling the stress to feeling the pain. So sometimes it's just like a matter of the the mind and it's not necessarily a physical injury that's causing the pain. Mm, totally right. Because I mean, we we can all have I'm not good enough come up, and that might n- never be something that we completely eradicate. Like you know, like a blackhead, you just pop out. It may always be there a little bit, but the way that that could feed an emotional state, like do you spend an entire day in an, in I'm not good enough because something happens, and then that hits a certain threshold, which then will activate pain, or is it this kind of blip, and then you're kind of you move on, you know, and you're you you get a hold of your self-talk. I am good enough. It's all good. And then, you know, and, and take the reins on it almost. Yeah. So again, it comes back down to mindset. So like finding your triggers and working on those. Totally. Do you have any uh, specific breathing exercises? Like what's the, what's the main breathing exercise that you'll start off with if someone's like, well, I don't know what you mean by breathing exercises. <laughs> That's yeah. So <laughs> if you like really don't know anything, all I do is I'll have you like place a hand on your belly and one hand on your chest. And then you should sort of feel your belly rise and fall, but you shouldn't really have very much movement in your chest. So that's how you know that you're focusing on belly breathing. So that's step one. And when you're able to master that and you can um, control your breath that way, then I do a lot of box breathing. That's something that I found really helpful. There's so many different variations of this, like where you hold it for longer, but box breathing is essentially you're doing an inhale for four seconds, hold for four seconds, out for four seconds, and then hold again for four seconds. So it's just this cycle of four seconds. Some people find that the longer ones, like some people do um, where you hold for like seven or eight seconds, it's a little bit too much for someone who maybe is feeling anxious or you've just never done this before. So I like box breathing because it's a little bit shorter. So you can do um, more breaths faster and Mm -hmm. it helps to calm you down a little bit. And then obviously if you want to hold longer, if you want to do slower inhales or slower exhales, you can work from there. 
Mm, I love that. Yeah. I, th- I think the beauty of box breathing, the technique that you suggested is that it's just accessible. It's 444 is easy to remember as opposed to the, the variation and all of the inhale lengths and exhale lengths and pause lengths. And, and box breathing, I think it was used by uh, snipers because it's so calming that it like centers you and it helps you aim. And so it, it's effective for sure. <laughs> if the military uses it, I think it could benefit our, our focus and health. Um, okay. And I love the belly breathing as well. Um, Cause it's something that, that could be subtle and that's sometimes, you know, if you're just in the subway or you're just, if it occurs to you, it's something easy and it, it could just be one breath. Where is my breath going? Oh, it's not. Okay. Now it's in my belly. Okay. Now I'm resetting that whole system. And um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the breathing into our chest, like the shallow breaths actually lead to a lot of neck pain and headaches. So for anyone experiencing those, I especially recommend the belly breathing because what we do is we end up using our, they're called the accessory muscles of breathing. So we use like the muscles in our neck. So the scalenes and the upper traps and things like that. And those tend to tighten up and then we start feeling pain in those areas, but it's because we've started using those muscles as our breathing muscles. So once we stop and we relax those and breathe into our stomach and activate our diaphragm, it actually helps with neck pain and headaches too. Mm. It's actually, I was just thinking too, like, I mean, so not breathing enough creates hypoxia, low oxygen states and our body, that's an inflammatory state. It's a, it creates damage in the tissues and then the whole immune system activates and then we get inflammation. And it's one of these ways that could trigger autoimmune disease even. It's pretty powerful. So oxygenation of our bodies is not only good for the nervous system, relaxing tension, but also for lowering inflammation. Um, and so many cultures and, and um, you know, like, 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 you know, yoga and Buddhism and, you know, there's always this breathing, um, uh, th- this component of breath work to so many different techniques and, and uh, spiritual practices too. Yeah, it's such a like it's such a good tool, and I feel like a lot of us could benefit from it. So if you're not breathing, <laughs> this is your chance to try it out. And we have it all the time. You always have a breath, actually. Yeah, in, in the you know your breath's always there, so it's a fun thing to watch as well. You know, <laughs> it's like you're always near a, an ocean. You know, you're always watching the t- the waves come in and out as you're breathing. Um, and Dana, is there anything that you're offering right now, anything you're working on right now that people could find out about or? Yeah, absolutely. So I deal a lot with uh, women who have back pain. So I've created an online program for people who want to work with me, but not necessarily one-on-one. So it's in a group setting. It's online. It's accessible by anyone anywhere. So that's something that I have going on. And I also have created a free guide for exercises that people can do that have back pain that want to start reducing that pain. Mm -hmm. And I also have a posture challenge. So a lot of people have poor posture or like they it's, it contributes to pain. It doesn't necessarily cause pain and it may not necessarily be the posture itself that needs to change, but there are a lot of other things associated with that, with like maybe not moving, just being in the same position for so many hours a day working, or like you said, when you were on the 
the retreat like setting for (laughs) that long it's usually those actions that lead to pain so just being more aware of things like that that's Mm -hmm. something that I talk about within my posture challenge so if that's something of interest we can Mm -hmm. leave some links down below for you guys to check out Mm -hmm. yeah we'll put them in the in the show notes and in the youtube um yeah and, and it just reminds me too of like if with posture and how that will affect our breathing. So it all comes full circle and it all, it all cycles in and cycles in on itself. And this is awesome. Those are great. Those are three awesome offerings. So I'll definitely put links up for those uh, that people can check out. And any last things you want to end on or any last thoughts? Um, I feel like health is just a journey overall. It doesn't matter what you're treating, what condition you have, or like what is happening. I feel like once we have a baseline, once everyone's reached like a certain level of like maybe just drinking enough water, getting a little bit of movement every day, I feel like so many things could be eliminated. Like so many different aches and pains could be gone from our lives. So many different health conditions could be maybe slowed down. So I feel like just having some awareness of the things that you're doing every day in your life style and movement and all of those things, it's good to address everything and never just one thing at a time, just because you feel pain and you go see a chiropractor and you get adjusted once in a while, that's not necessarily enough. So I feel like there's a little bit more that everyone can do and it doesn't have to be difficult. It doesn't have to be life-changing stuff. It's the little changes that usually make the biggest differences. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's what I want to leave everyone with. I love that, actually. That's wonderful. It reminds me of that Instagram post uh, that a lot of people were sharing where it was like, always drink water, but if you drink too much, it'll kill you and don't eat any meat, but make sure that you're eating protein. It was this kind of like just making fun of the super confusing advice that we get on Dr. Google or the internet. And what I hear you saying is like, you know, it's it doesn't have to be that complicated, but it is better if it's holistic and perhaps working with a guide as well could help you just navigate the waters and understand what your own specific recipe is. Um, but knowing that it's never going to be a finished, pro- uh, you know, a finished product. Like there's always this process of, of, of um, being in balance. Yeah, totally mm-hmm. agree. Thank you, Dana. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. 